We see them every day in New York City, pushing shopping carts filled with their belongings. Some of us look away to avoid eye contact or that awkward feeling. Others offer help, money, or food. But unless you've been there, how much do any of us really know about what it's like to live on the streets? Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guest this morning was homeless in New York City for more than a decade and still spends part of his life on the streets. He goes by the name Cadillac Man. For years, he kept a diary, recording facts about his daily life in notebooks. Those notebooks have since been distilled into a memoir, thanks in part to magazine writer and book author Will Blythe, who met and befriended Cadillac Man in Astoria, Queens. Cadillac Man joined me in our studios earlier this week to talk about his book, Land of Lost Souls. The Land of Lost Souls is a street name for uh, Potter's Field. It's where uh, most of my people wind up. It's their final destination. It really uh, hurts me to talk about it, whereas, you know, besides the uh, it being the final resting place, it doesn't get any respect, meaning that with most cemeteries, there's always like some form of service involved. With us, it's just plant us in the ground and uh, forget about us. And that upsets me deeply because... Uh, Regardless as to your background, you know, simple prayer doesn't hurt. My gosh, even if you just went over to the site and just say, rest in peace, something, instead of just dumping you in the ground and covering you up. You are a praying man, Cadillac, right? To a degree, to a degree. You know, like uh, we never really used the word God. He's the boss to you, right? That's right. He's the boss. And what a lot of people don't know was that Jesus was homeless. He never really had one set residence, right? He went from place to place, right? And not only that, the criticism that he received, it's typical of modern-day homeless people where they get criticized. How do you think people see folks like you? And I should say people with jobs and with houses. I don't know how many times I heard people say, well, why don't you get a job? You know, and sometimes, you know, depending on my mood, I would tell them, well, give me one. Give me one. And let's face it, for uh, the homeless to find work, it's extremely hard. You know, like if I was to submit a resume right now and uh, my employer looks at it, he says, well, uh, what about this 12-year gap here? What were you doing during that time? And if I told them I was living on the streets and, you know, like, okay, you know, just put this, I will be in touch. You know, in other words, don't call me, you know, uh, I'll call you and stuff. So uh, the other thing, too, where uh, they think that we have mental problems and stuff like that, let's face it, every one of us has some form of mental illness, you know, no matter how slight, but yet with us, we get criticized constantly. You know, like, like sometimes they just don't realize we may act that way just to be left alone. We're battling our own problems. We don't want anyone really to get directly involved with us. You said a 12-year gap, but you've actually been on the streets longer than 12 years right now? Actually longer, but... Uh, 
gosh, it seems like it was a hundred years. It actually seems like it was a hundred years. But even one day is too long for anyone. You know, I'm just surprised that uh, I lasted this long, really, because we have an extremely high mortality rate. You know, like if you were to last more than, like, say, two years, that's a lot. You know, like due to illness or the elements or, you know, some of the other dangers that you're faced with every day, yeah. Why did you last so long? Why are you still alive? Good question. Why am I still alive? Uh, Well, I think the boss had something to do with it, (laughs) number one. And number two, uh, I think it was just part of it was like sheer luck and the other part, you know, sheer determination. You know, like uh, I felt like I had a purpose, what it was, I didn't know at the time. I really didn't know, and I just uh, kept going on and on and on until better things uh, started happening. Were there times when you wanted to take your own life? Oh, yes. There were times in the uh, very beginning where uh, depression really sunk in, I mean, really uh, at a dangerous level. I started thinking about the life I once had, you know, uh, meaning home. And I started thinking about my children. So, uh, you know, you get somebody at a bad moment and they'll do something. And when these bad moments occurred to me, something happened that made me just stop. Made me just stop, you know. uh, There was one occasion where I just... uh, I wanted to jump off a bridge, and I looked at the water, and the water looked so inviting. It was like saying, you know, come to me, you know, I'll ease all your pain. And fortunately, at that time, there was several police officers saying, you know, like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, 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 you know, well, I used to work across the river over there, and uh, it stopped me out of it several times. Do you still have bad moments? Bad moments? uh, The only... Actually, bad moment I have is if I don't have my coffee and stuff. But no, no. Well, maybe a couple of things physical-wise, you know, like uh, I love to write, and uh, due to uh, the arthritis that I have in my hands, it's really uh, cutting it back. Where do you do your writing? Well, sometimes at home. And And where is home today? Well, right now in uh, East Elmhurst. And the other times, uh, I'm underneath the viaduct. You know, that's my second home. That's my second home. So uh, all my uh, thoughts come out so much, you know, the memories and also uh, sitting in my favorite chair and uh, right next to my wagon that I had for so many years. It's sort of like it secretes the memories to me by just looking at the wagon and stuff. And then plus two, being in... Astoria, Queens, you know, hello, everybody in Astoria, I love you. Um, it helps. It really, really helps. So then now, are you only part-time on the streets as a quote-unquote homeless person, or do you live full-time on the streets? Oh, no, I'm a, I wouldn't really call it part-time homeless. Uh, what would be, I really couldn't think of a better uh, word for it, but um, 
freelance homeless? <laughs> I mean, no, because uh, I had the love of my life here uh, with us, Carol, and um, to uh, go to the viaduct, I try to make it there like maybe uh, twice a week, you know, to uh, catch up with the other street people that are still alive and to uh, catch up with the uh, latest gossip, so to speak, or, you know, sometimes they'll come over to me and tell me, well, okay, like, this person's bothering me, that person's bothering me, you know, and they come to me, which I'm flattered, you know, for uh, advice, you know, sometimes. Back in the past, I used to knock some heads with them, you know, get some sense into them, but now uh, they're getting fewer and fewer, sadly. So that's another good reason why... You know, I'm inside now because after a while, you just get so tired of seeing death around you. You know, like case in point, when I uh, arrived in Astoria in 02, we had roughly, I'd say between 40 to 45 homeless people. Here it is, 09, there's only about four left, right? And what's taking their lives? It's a combination of things. Like, uh, for the most part, it is the uh, substance abuse, right? And the uh, the other thing is, you know, we really don't take care of ourselves. We really, really don't. You know, we're just waiting to die. When we used to go to, like, hospitals and what have you, the way that we were treated, it used to really upset us. In fact, it used to get to the point where I, myself, I wouldn't want to go to a hospital. You know, I'd rather take care of my injury or my illness out on the streets. There's a story in the book. You were beat up by a group of people on the streets. The police came. They offered to take you to a hospital. You refused the treatment. You were Mm -hmm. bleeding. You were blind in one eye. That's correct. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, Again, uh, just the way that people look at us. You shouldn't have been out there in the first place. That was the normal reaction we got from some people. Or uh, they'll tell us, well... Here's a rope, you know, like at arm's distance and stuff. They were, like, terrified of us. You know, here it is in the hospitals. What are they afraid of, Cadillac? What are they afraid of? I don't know. I think they uh, thought that we were, like, contagious or that uh, we might just flip out on them. I couldn't imagine Cadillac sleeping and being awoken by kicks, by punches. How often does that happen on the streets here in New York City? It's happened to you more than once. Oh, yes, more than once. Um, It happens quite a bit, quite a bit. It's just that it doesn't make any news. If a nine-to-fiver got beaten up and was found lying in the streets, that's news, really, that's news. You know, somebody like me that was beaten up and stuff like that, is that newsworthy? I don't think so. And these are people just getting their rocks off, so to speak, just getting some jollies? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, uh, we have a thing out in the streets. We really don't pick on one another. You know, uh, all right, we do have our little squabbles and stuff like that. Most of the times you might see, uh, you know, several guys fighting it out over a bottle or what have you. But uh, other than that, not to the point where we would kill one another. You know, I, I've seen some uh, instances like uh, several night, knife fights where uh, when it was all over with, you know, they just went to the side and started sharing their bottle. It was no big deal. But out there, if somebody's really having a bad day, 
and they see a homeless person lying on a park bench or on a sidewalk or whatever, you know, they'll take their frustrations out, right, because they know they can get away with it. You know, with me, you know, you pick on me, I'll hurt you. You're a fighter. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I love it. You know, I love a good fight. You know, now that I'm semi-retired from fighting and stuff, but uh, now that Carol's in my life, you know, I restrain from fighting and stuff. But, How did you and Carol meet? Uh, we met underneath the uh, viaduct on September 10th of 06. You know, Anniversary is coming up. That's right, yep. Uh, every year... I was putting up some tables for uh, 9-11. I was uh, setting up a memorial table. And she happened to come over, and she noticed, well, you know, maybe you should put the candles this way. Maybe you should put the flags that way. I tell you, she was fabulous. I mean, she made that table look awesome. And uh, from then on, uh, we just started talking. And one thing led to another, and uh, I love her dearly. I love her dearly. You know, she... uh, I feel myself truly blessed. Like, for many years, a lot of people, a lot of people told me, you know, why didn't you come inside, right? And I didn't want to. You know, that was my life out there. You know, I was believing that I was going to die out there, and I wasn't afraid. And uh, one day Carol uh, told me, he said, well, why don't you come inside with me? And I said, okay, just like that, no hesitation. What was it, just the right time or the right person? The right person, absolutely. The right person itself. And I never met such a caring... We're embarrassing Carol over here, I think, a little bit maybe, huh? (laughs) You know, a caring and compassionate woman. I mean, wow, she's incredible. And I want to spend the rest of my days with her. You know, a lot of people would think that you can't find love on the streets of New York City when you're a street person, but you've found love in Carol. You've had other relationships. Oh, yeah. You know, that that's a myth I have to break and stuff like that. You know, like, we have feelings, too. My gosh, you know, we uh, we laugh like you and cry like you, you know, like, all right. So, so we look a little different. We're still human beings. My gosh. And, I don't want to embarrass you, but... You have sex, too. You have those needs as well. Absolutely. I mean, everybody, you know, like, really, uh, regardless as to your station in life, you have to. You know, my gosh. You met a young woman by the name of Penny a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. She was a runaway. Her dad was very abusive. She left her home. She ended up on the streets of New York City. You helped her. Mm -hmm. Not only did you help her on the streets to survive, you helped her find her way back to her extended family. Yes. To her aunt. Aunt Claire. Her Aunt Claire. Um, all on the streets, especially with women, you know, uh, the survive out there, very, very hard. Again, there are lots of sickos out there, and, you know, they're quick to take advantage of a woman. And with Penny, well, originally I didn't think that she was a woman. I found out the hard way <laughs> when mm-hmm. I found out that, you know, he was a she. and Her dad had cut all of her long hair off. That's right. That's right. And uh, I just couldn't believe, you know, the abuse that she uh, encountered before I met up with her. And then when I finally did meet up with her and with those two guys that were stomping on her and 
I was like, wow, how, again, like, how could somebody be like that? You know, uh, be so cruel. But uh, with her, I felt that she wasn't going to last. And I don't think I would have because I would have had to lower my guard. You know, like when, I, when I'm fighting somebody, I'm focused straight on them, right? If I have somebody next to me that I have to worry about, like if I just divert my eyes for a second, then I'm at a disadvantage. So I was thinking there has to be some way that I could get off the streets and just by chance so one night, you know, with her bag and I saw all her pictures and pieces of paper that were all torn up. And, you know, she's telling me about it. She was very sad. And I says, I says Penny, you, you go to sleep. You know, I'm good at putting together jigsaw puzzles and what have you. And I put them together, and that one piece of paper had just in case call me, Aunt Claire. And I saw the number, and I says, aha. And I, I called her. Of course, she thought that I was in for the reward. I didn't even know anything about a reward. And I said, no, I just wanted to bring her home. Yeah. That was very hard for you because you I fell really, in love with Penny. I did. She took away your loneliness. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. You know, like even when I saw Aunt Claire and, uh, you know, Penny, uh, you know, I told her, I said, take a look at that lady over there with that green hat and big feather. And, you know, she looked over and she recognized her aunt and saw her two sisters. And then she looked at me and. Yeah, I told her it was time to go home, Penny, and like, wow. You know what really hit me, Cadillac, is the fact that you ripped up that little piece of paper yes. with Anne Claire's phone number after Penny went home with her. Mm-hmm. Why? Did you not want to have a number to get back in contact? Why did you decide to cut all ties at that point? It felt like the right thing to do at that time. Again, Penny was 19 at that time. I was 46. So I didn't really have any uh, prospects, you know, life prospects. You know, like uh, I felt I was going to be out in the streets forever. And uh, with Penny, I said, well, she's young enough. She could restart her life, you know, like right now, even now, I'm hoping that, you know, she's happily married with kids and, you know, good husband, good job and what have you. So that's it. Never any communication since. None whatsoever. You know, like. I wouldn't mind getting an email. That's why I put an email uh, <laughs> address in the back of the book because just in case, you know, somebody from the past, and, you know, like sometimes I even fantasize that uh, Penny would be going to, like, say, a bookstore and there's my book right on the shelf. And I said, oh, my gosh, it's Caddy and stuff. But, How does that feel to have your book right there? I've seen it in storefront windows. Wow. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it really uh, – shocks me even to this day you know like oh this is really really awesome and stuff you know for book two i don't know if i have my uh face on the cover but <laughs> no it's good it really is a good feeling and stuff you write that you should have several houses and i use houses with quotation marks mm-hmm. houses gonna mean like in my case uh there were a lot of abandoned buildings garages <laughs> mausoleums mausoleums subway tunnels sewers like uh rooftops you know the the list is en- endless cuz um 
you always have to have a backup, you know, like uh, if I wanted to go, like, say, to a cemetery one night and uh, I see that there's uh, extra security, I says, uh-oh, well, I can't go here tonight. And then I said, well, I go to Plan B and go underneath the uh, Triborough Bridge because I know that there's a utility room that I could use. Always have a backup. You also had a security system that you used to protect your belongings. <laughs> what was that all about? There were times when I used uh, pistachio nuts. Oh, they're great. They are absolutely great. In fact, uh, you could just, like, say, for example, uh, turn out the lights and just sprinkle some on the ground. And the noise that they make, you know, out in the streets you sleep very lightly. You know, the slightest noise will wake you up. So with these pistachio nuts, I hit them, instantly awake. And then as I'm waking up, I'm grabbing my weapon just in case. We haven't talked yet, Cadillac, about how you ended up on the streets of New York City. You were once employed. You worked for Pepsi-Cola. You Mm -hmm. had a management position. Right. So what led to you becoming a street person? Well, it was just a string of bad luck. With Pepsi, uh, I got laid off. And fortunately, I uh, went into my old job working at the meat market. And then uh, the uh, the owners one day decided to close up the shop and retire. And I'm like, wow. You know, I just lost one job after another. In fact, I went to uh, several uh, trade schools, you know, took up various uh, courses. And the same thing when I graduated and I got the certificate, you know, they told me, well, uh, you don't have the experience. Well, give me the job and I'll get the experience, but. It was the same same old story, and uh, again, depression sunk in. I was drinking that my wife didn't know about at the time, and I didn't have anybody to talk to. I think if I had one person there that would just listen, you know, like even uh, not say anything, just even listen, I think it would have made a big difference would have made a big difference, but sadly they weren't. And then finally uh, I was taking time off of my uh, wife. I would disappear for a couple of days, and then uh, I would call her up, and then she would tell me, well, come home, or she would put my daughter uh, Jessica on the line and say, you know, Daddy, come home. And then after a while she just got fed up. She says, you know, I, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this, you know, and I'll never forget her last words. She said, and now I want you to go. And that was uh, June 16th of 94. Your wife kicked you out. You came to Manhattan. You took a bus here, and you stayed on the streets that first night, and you never left. That's right. Someone would question, why didn't you go to someone else? Why didn't you stay with a friend? Why didn't you go to a family member's house? How does someone just get kicked out of their home by their wife and mm-hmm. sleep on the street and stay there. Help us to understand that. Well, there are times where uh, when it comes to friends, you know, a, a friend might put you up for a day or two, maybe, or or even longer. You know, it really depends on the individual. The type of friends I had, um, they just couldn't do it. As for my uh, family, well... I come from a very dysfunctional family, and uh, 
If I was to uh, go over to my mother's house and say, hey, Ma, you know, my wife kicked me out of the house, and she'd probably say, well, it serves you right. <laughs> I mean, at the time, really. The other thing, too, uh, it might create like a hardship for your uh, family. You know, so very hard. You know, every, every street person that I encountered, uh, well, not every, but for the most part, uh, their families kicked them out. You know, again, it might have been like substance abuse or whatever, and they never go back. Never. I only know of uh, just a couple of happy endings where families actually came and took them off the streets. For the most part, you know, they'll say, well, maybe they want to be on the streets because once you get into that lifestyle, it's very, very hard to break it. You know, like if I was to tell you to leave your house, you know, you're looking pretty crazy. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to leave. No way. Right? And it's the same thing for us. With all its dangers and hardships, you get used to it. You mentioned Jessica, one of your daughters, but you have three daughters, right? You were married yes. before. Yes. Uh, my oldest, actually, is Alice. And right now she would be roughly maybe about 45 45, 46, I'm not quite sure, but I never met her. I never met her. I, I learned about sex when I was very young, and one day uh, I received a letter with no return address, just a picture of a little girl with red hair and freckles, and the note on the back, this is your daughter Alice, she is five years old, and she's out there somewhere, and... As far as I know, uh, <laughs> I might be a grandfather or maybe even a great-grandfather. I really don't know. But uh, then I have my 33-year-old, Christine. She's uh, living upstate. She's a teacher. And uh, Carol found her for me. You know, she's a whiz when it comes to the uh, the Internet. You know, excellent researcher. And uh, one day she told me, she says, I found your daughter. And would you like to see a picture of her? And I freaked out, you know, like, really? And then she showed me the screen and like, wow. And my youngest, uh, Jessica, she's uh, 20. And uh, she's in Jersey somewhere, somewhere. And maybe hopefully someday uh, I'll meet up with them again. You know, maybe even... uh, ask for their forgiveness. So you haven't reached out to either of those two children who you know where they are? Christine, I know where she is. With with Jessica, I suspect that she's going to school. You know, so where? And not only that, too, I got some other issues that I have to address first before I'm able to uh, get in contact with Jessica. It's been now uh, about 11 years since I've seen them last. What about your wife, the woman who asked you to leave that night? Have you had any contact with her? Uh, Legal-wise, yes, but uh, other than that, no. Your family doesn't know you as Cadillac Man. Cadillac Man is your street name. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <laughs> when the book came out, uh, accidentally uh, I sent an email to my uh, oldest sister, Right, and uh, she in turn sent it to my other siblings, right? And <laughs> they sent a reply back, and <laughs> they called me Cadillac. 
<laughs> just Cadillac. <laughs> just Cadillac and stuff like that. So uh, I know I think it upset them a little bit, you know, that I didn't uh, use the family name. But, hey, no, I'm Cadillac. You know, that part of my life is uh, dead as far as I'm concerned. Cadillac Man is me, reborn. I'm a new person as a result of Cadillac. Before, that other person, I, I can't remember his name, you know. Nah. He's long gone. And the name Cadillac Man, where does that come from? When you're pushing the wagon out there, there's always somebody out. You know, uh, you're a target. You're a target. So in about six weeks' time, I was hit by six Cadillacs. Well, actually, five of them I was clipped by, right? Meaning they would slam their door open on me as they were driving by. But the last one, the last one was out to kill me. It came at me head on. And to this day, I don't know how I survived it, right? But anyway, I landed on piece of the uh, Cadillac. I landed on top of the logo, right? And it left an impression on my stomach. And I went around showing everybody. You know, it didn't say Cadillac. It was like a few letters and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I went around showing everybody, hey, look at me. I'm the Cadillac man. And it stuck. Exactly. Cadillac man, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cadillac man's book is called Land of Lost Souls, My Life on the Streets. It's out now from Bloomsbury. Cadillac Man has been a fixture in Astoria for several years now. And on Wednesday, Queens Councilman Peter Wallone Jr. will present him with a proclamation at City Hall. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Mary Wilson. Have a great weekend. <laughs>